So we're continuing in Ecclesiastes this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And I hope that your experience today won't be what the title of the message is. Um, Um, you can tell who who picked who preached what Sunday (laughs) Daniel got to preach last Sunday on work and I get to preach this Sunday on suffering so you can tell he was the one that picked who preached what um although I did get to preach on pleasure two weeks ago. I do want to just start out by clarifying that suffering isn't the electricity going out with five minutes left to go in the Seahawks game, okay? That's not suffering, okay? As we talk about evil and oppression and suffering this morning, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and as Daniel prayed, uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a heavy topic. And one, thankfully, that probably hardly any of us have experienced to the degree that is being talked about. We've read about it, uh, and we've heard about it, maybe some of us have experienced it, but it's something we really need to wrestle with because we're surrounded either ourselves or by people, friends, family who are constantly asking the question in the midst of what we see around us, does God care (laughs) or where is God um, in the midst of life? And so that's our topic this morning. So I'm going to pray again before we go into it, that God would, um, God would teach us. Father, in so many ways, I have lived a, a life that has been removed from so much of the suffering and evil and oppression that is just rampant in our world. Father, I've seen it. I've, I have relationships with so many that have suffered. And, and Father, maybe some are here this morning, even right now, going through and experiencing what we're going to talk about or know someone. Father, as we look into your word and as we wrestle with uh, these issues, I pray that you would lift up our eyes to see you and understand what we're talking about this morning in, with eyes fixed on you. So I give you this time that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. My mother told me to run from our village to another town, though we knew no one there because of the scary rate of abductions of young women, including married ones. In February, my brother's 16-year-old wife was abducted with their two children, and they have not been found. The insurgents returned a month later to kill my other brother, 
and took away his teenage wife but left her young baby behind. She managed to escape from the insurgents camp and is back home now mourning her murdered husband. My mother became afraid that I would be the next target, so she sent me away. And I have been sleeping in a church since I arrived in this town a few days ago. This was the testimony of a Christian girl fleeing from the Boko Haram. I was seven years old when the German SS soldiers first came into Holland. Little did I know the changes that would take place in my life during the next months and years. The first thing that changed was that I was required to wear a yellow star on all of my clothing at all times. The center of the star had the word for Jew in Dutch. All of my friends in my class at school who were Jewish had to do the same thing. The next thing I remember is that I started hearing yelling out in the streets. Angry voices were demanding that people gather in the streets. And when I looked out the window, I could see that all of the people had the same yellow star on their coats. One night, these angry voices came into our apartment building, kicking in doors and yelling for all of the people who were Jews to get out and gather below in the street. My seven-year-old mind did not understand why I did not see these people again. Some of my friends didn't come to school the next day, nor the next day. I never saw them again. One day my mother told me that my uncle and aunt had been arrested. We did not know why. We never saw them again. Many rules were posted that applied only to those of us wearing the yellow star. One was that we could not own or use a boat. And my father was a fisherman. At a time when it seemed that things had somewhat quieted down in our area, my father took our small rowboat out on the canal to fish. We never saw him again. The testimony of a Holocaust survivor that Cindy um, heard lecture at Olympic College just this past week. One of her students wrote this, brings things a little closer home. When I was 20, I was at a bar on April 20th. Anybody here know what April 20th commemorates? Hitler's birthday. I didn't know that. A group of racist men came in and beat me until every bone in my head was broken. I suffered a hematoma on the front, frontal lobe of my brain and was in a coma for 30 days. I was hospitalized for three months. I had to be taught to walk and talk and read and write all over again a paper he wrote for Cindy in her class two weeks ago. It's hard to understand. It's one of the things that angers me more than anything else, injustice. Uh, Understanding why slumlords, rich people who own lots of property, could treat their poor tenants so bad. Why men called pimps could prey on 
young girls running away from home and within minutes of them running away from home turn them into prostitutes. White people would oppress other people because of the color of their skin. Why greedy investors, and this happened to someone just around the corner from where we lived, a, a, a lady, a senior citizen, who lost everything, her retirement, because of a dishonest person who involved her in an illegal Ponzi scheme. I, I can't understand how, as you read in the paper about these drug cartels who can ruthlessly and uh, indiscriminately just slaughter people in order to expand their drug territory and their drug empires. Uh, it disgusts me when I hear about dishonest politicians who use their p position and power to gain personal wealth. Uh, the latest, we just saw the Speaker of the House in the, in the New York uh, legislature. I can't even comprehend fathers and uncles and grandfathers and brothers violating their own daughters and nieces and granddaughters and sisters. We live in a world that is cruel and unfair. And Ecclesiastes confirms this um, and the meaninglessness of it. And, and I'd like us, if, you, if you're there, let, Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to read a few verses just to capture the starkness of this in Ecclesiastes as, as Solomon, the teacher, brings up the meaninglessness of oppression and in the, under the sun. Ecclesiastes 4, I'm going to read a few verses starting with Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3. And I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. They have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. And those are strong words, aren't they? It's like he's saying that's just the way it is. The powerful taking advantage of the powerless. Ecclesiastes 8, if you turn to verse 14. One more verse, Ecclesiastes 8, 14. It says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. And if we were to put that in modern lingo, modern lingo, we'd say the good suffer and the evil skate. <laughs> they, they just get off. And that's so much what the world seems to be like or is like. 
Job reiterated this just a couple of books before. In Job 30, 26, and 27, he says almost the same thing. He says, when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. And with the churning come questions, right? Where is God? If God is so good and powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Do something about it? Doesn't he care? And so the question, and I told Daniel I was going to raise the question, and then I'll let him answer it next week. <laughs> the question is, what can we get from Ecclesiastes? Because it's obviously filled with the meaninglessness of the world we live in and the power of the oppressors and the, and the pain of the oppressed. And, and it's everywhere. What can we get from Ecclesiastes that helps us in dealing with this problem of pain, evil, suffering, and oppression? And as I I read through the whole book, the answer, I believe, is in the last two verses. So we're going to turn there. We almost got to the end without any hope, but the last two verses. So we're going to look there this morning. And I'm going to read them, and then we're going to look at them. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. And this is his conclusion to the whole thing, but I think it's particularly apropos to the subject that we're dealing with this morning, which is oppression, evil, suffering. Verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God... And keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And that's what we're to do. Fear God, keep his commandments. And then verse 14, what God will do. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So what we are to do, first, before we look at what we're to do, fear God and keep his commandments, I want to just share a few things that I think typically we do do that we shouldn't do. Um, The first is, I think the first thing, when when we're faced with the power of the oppressors and, and the the pain of the oppressed, and we just see it everywhere, the natural response is to deny God. There can't be a God. To, 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 to deny that God, how can there be a God if there is so much evil in the world? And, and I'd like to just respond to that just really quickly by saying that the fact that we acknowledge evil admits to acknowledging a God who gives us a moral standard so we know there is evil. So we're going to just move on from that and, and, and the folly of just eliminating God because there is evil. The second thing is that 
I think we can do is not just deny God, but we can reduce God. We can make him less than God. Um, some of you might be familiar with a book written by Rabbi Harold Kushner called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was put out a while ago. After watching his son die of the disease progeria, this is what he concluded. Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check. God is obviously a God of justice, but not of power. And so his answer to inconceivable suffering was to say there is a God and he cares, but he can't do anything about it. And that's no God. Compassionate but powerless, that's not the answer. A third response, and I think this is maybe one of the most common, is that we can confuse God with life. Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, it's a, it's a great book, it's an old book, describes his relationship and, and, and his interview with a guy that he named Douglas. And Douglas went through what Philip Yancey described as the life of Job. Through inexplicable suffering, he went through his wife dying of cancer and just the horrible suffering that she went through. And in the midst of that, an auto accident in which he was rendered almost mentally incapable of functioning. Um, Philip Yancey asked him the question, how are you disappointed with God? In the midst of going through all of this injustice and all of this suffering, and this was his response. He said, I didn't feel any disappointment with God. And the reason is because I learned first through my wife's cancer and then especially through my accident not to confuse God with life. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. And so Job himself, in the book of Job, said, should we not accept evil from God as we accept good? And so not to confuse God with what is going on in life. And then, then the last thing, and I think sometimes church people can do this. Uh, not necessarily deny God or, or, or reduce God or confuse God with our life, but we can cheapen God. Um, we can trivialize God in the midst of suffering with statements, and they can be correct statements, but we can trivialize it by saying, well, maybe God is trying to teach you something. I can't believe anybody saying that to anybody in the midst of pain. Don't forget that there are people worse off than you, or you should be counting your blessings 
and all kinds of trivial things that might be true but don't help in the midst of severe suffering. So what is the correct response? Solomon says, fear God and obey his commands. I want to just quickly, just in passing, say obey his commands. You know, I think in passing, a lot of suffering would be avoided if we would just do that, right? A lot of suffering unnecessary simply because we don't obey his commands. But what does he mean by fear God? I think what he means is have a God-dominated perspective. And I've shared this before, and to me it, it really helps, helps us to understand what fear is. It's, if you're an arachnophobic, if you're afraid of spiders, what it means that if you see a spider, like I did this morning, kind of hanging from its little web right by in where I was, the... Um, if you're an arachnophobic, and we had a gal that lived with us, she saw that, she would have been screaming and as far away as she could be. And she was afraid of spiders, but what that means, it just means that spiders dominate her whole perspective. She sees a spider, a silly little spider that couldn't do anything about it, you know, to her, and it just dominates everything about her, her mind, her emotions, everything. That is what fear God means. Is that God would dominate our thinking, our perspective, our emotions in the midst of suffering. You know, Job struggled with the fairness of God throughout the whole book of Job, just wanting God to give him an answer, give him an explanation, because Job knew that he wasn't this horrible, unrighteous, evil person. And he just wanted God to answer him. And we come to the end of the book of Job, and it's interesting, God never answers Job's questions. But what God does is he reveals himself to Job. And in the last chapters of the book of Job, we see God saying, okay, listen to me. Let me tell you about who I am. And and, and we come to the end, and these are Job's words. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. It's like when Job saw God as he had never seen God before. His perspective changed from being dominated by his suffering to simply being dominated by God and it led him to worship God in the midst of his suffering. It didn't eliminate it, but in the midst of it, as he saw God as he'd never seen before, he was able to worship. If you'd turn with me to to Psalm 73, we we see a, a beautiful illustration of this in Psalm 73. Starting at verse 2. Psalm 73. The writer says, My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant. 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong and they're free from common human burdens. And this is like, you know, reading the news and, and all these wealthy, powerful, popular people. It's like they have everything. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. It's like they're immune from anybody doing anything to them. Their callous hearts, with, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? God can't do anything to us. Verse 13, the psalmist says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed our children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. And it became clear. As I I was fixated on, on the oppressors and the powerful and the people that are making everybody's lives miserable, I I was in torment, but then I entered the sanctuary. I entered into God's presence, the psalmist says. And everything became clear with God's perspective. The question is, with the command is, fear God. The question is, have we seen God? And the point I think that Solomon is making here is that evil and suffering find perspective when we live in God's presence. Evil and suffering find perspective when we live in God's presence. And then he goes on, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In Revelation chapter 20, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. We see this final judgment. Listen. Then I saw a great white throne judgment, a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death, meaning the final death, eternal separation from God. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so I think 
the first thing we see in, in Ecclesiastes 12.14 about God's judgment is that God will finally judge evil at the great white throne judgment. It will once and for all finally be abolished and eradicated. But I think there's another judgment that is talked about here. God will bring every deed into judgment. And it happens before the great white throne judgment. And we see it described in Mark chapter 15. Let me just read a few verses here. And I want you to, as I read, I want you to see the, the full weight of this judgment that is happening. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son forsaken by the Father. And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple, one foot thick, was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. I think the most powerful display of God's judgment on evil, on sin, on suffering, was what happened on the cross and happened to Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified, made right with God, freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And this is the key word. God presenting Jesus as a propitiation. A propitiation through the shedding of His blood. And and the word propitiation literally means the one who took the anger of God upon himself. The full wrath and judgment of God upon himself to pay for the sins of the world. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, 
And that's exactly what happened on the cross. God judged evil on the cross in the person of Jesus. The full judgment of his wrath came upon Jesus that we might find salvation. You know, the question here is, have we seen God? And I think the point here is evil and suffering find perspective when we look at the cross. Evil and suffering find perspective when we live in God's presence and evil and suffering find perspective when we look at the cross. Author Henry Nouwen tells the story of a family he knew in Paraguay. The father, a doctor, spoke out against the military regime there and its human rights abuses. And the local police took their revenge on him by arresting his teenage son and torturing him to death. The enraged townsfolk wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march, but the doctor chose another means of protest. At the funeral, the father displayed his son's body as he had found it in the jail, naked, scarred from the electric shocks, cigarette burns, and beatings. And as the villagers filed past the corpse, which lay not in a coffin, but on the blood-soaked mattress from the prison, the strongest protest imaginable took place because it put injustice on gross display. And so was the display of God's Son on the cross in the most graphic way possible. God's justice and God's love came together at the cross to display God's judgment against sin and evil and oppression and his compassion towards sinners by providing salvation through the crushing of his son. Life is full of injustice, evil, oppression, suffering. Where is God? Well, can you see him? Can you see him like Job? He is the glorious, good, and holy God. Live in his presence. Can you see him? He's the judge coming again to finally rid the world of evil that we might live in his presence someday forever. Look forward to his coming. And finally, he is Jesus hanging on the cross. Be amazed by his love. Let's pray. God, help us to do these things, to look forward to your coming and that day when sin and sorrow and oppression will be no more. Father, help us also to live in your presence, to be dominated by a view of you that gives us perspective as we're surrounded by suffering and oppression. And God, help us to see Jesus and 
and the incredible, incredible story of how your justice and your love came together in Jesus on the cross that we might live. Father, open our eyes to see, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.